Section 12, Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 12. The speculations of Chamberlain on the subject of the currency may possibly find admirers even in our own time, but to his other errors he added an error which began and ended with him. He was fool enough to take it for granted in all his reasonings that the value of an estate varied directly as the duration. He maintained that if the annual income derived from a manor were a thousand pounds, a grant of that manor for twenty years must be worth twenty thousand pounds, and a grant for a hundred years worth a hundred thousand pounds. If, therefore, the lord of such a manor would pledge it for a hundred years to the land bank, the land bank might, on that security, instantly issue notes for a hundred thousand pounds. On this subject, Chamberlain was proof to ridicule, to argument, even to arithmetical demonstration. He was reminded that the fee simple of land would not sell for more than twenty years' purchase. To say, therefore, that a term of a hundred years was worth five times as much as a term of twenty years, was to say that a term of hundred years was worth five times the fee simple. In other words, that a hundred years was five times infinity. Those who reasoned thus were refuted by being told that they were usurers, and it should seem that a large number of country gentlemen thought the refutation complete. In December, 1693, Chamberlain laid his plan in all its naked absurdity before the Commons and petitioned to be heard. He confidently undertook to raise eight thousand pounds on every freehold estate of a hundred and fifty pounds a year, which should be brought, as he expressed it, into his land bank, and this without dispossessing the freeholder. All the squires in the house must have known that the fee simple of such an estate would hardly fetch three thousand pounds in the market, that less than the fee simple of such an estate could by any device be made to produce eight thousand pounds would, it might have been thought, have seemed incredible to the most illiterate fox-hunter that could be found on the benches. Distress, however, and animosity had made the landed gentlemen credulous. They insisted on referring Chamberlain's plan to a committee, and the committee reported that the plan was practicable, and would tend to the benefit of the nation. But by this time the united force of demonstration and derision had begun to produce an effect even on the most ignorant rustics in the house. The report lay unnoticed on the table and the country was saved from a calamity compared with which the defeat of Landon and the loss of the Smyrna fleet would have been blessings. All the projectors of this busy time, however, were not so absurd as Chamberlain. One among them, William Patterson, was an ingenious, though not always a judicious, speculator. Of his early life little is known except that he was a native of Scotland, and that he had been in the West Indies. In what character he had visited the West Indies was a matter about which his contemporaries differed. His friends said that he had been a missionary, his enemies that he had been a buccaneer. He seems to have been gifted by nature with fertile invention, an ardent temperament, and great powers of persuasion, and to have acquired somewhere in the course of his vagrant life a perfect knowledge of accounts. This man submitted to the government in 1691 a plan of a national bank, and his plan was favorably received both by statesmen and by merchants. But years passed away, and nothing was done, till in the spring of 1694 it became absolutely necessary to find some new mode of defraying the charges of the war. Then at length the scheme devised by the poor and obscure Scottish adventurer was taken up in earnest by Montague. 
With Montague was closely allied Michael Godfrey, the brother of that Sir Edmondsbury Godfrey, whose sad and mysterious death had, fifteen years before, produced a terrible outbreak of popular feeling. Michael was one of the ablest, most upright, and most opulent of the merchant princes of London. He was, as might have been expected from his near connection with the martyr of the Protestant faith, a zealous Whig. Some of his writings are still extant and prove him to have had a strong and clear mind. By these two distinguished men, Patterson's scheme was fathered. Montague undertook to manage the House of Commons, Godfrey to manage the city. An approving vote was obtained by the tonnage for the benefit of such persons as should advance money towards carrying on the war. An approving vote was obtained by the Committee of Ways and Means, and a bill, the title of which gave occasion to many sarcasms, was laid on the table. It was indeed not easy to guess that a bill which purported only to impose a new duty on tonnage for the benefit of such persons as should advance money towards carrying on the war was really a bill creating the greatest commercial institution that the world had ever seen. The plan was that twelve hundred thousand pounds should be borrowed by the government on what was then considered as the moderate interest of eight per cent. In order to induce capitalists to advance the money promptly on terms so favorable to the public, the subscribers were to be incorporated by the name of the Governor and Company of the Bank of England. The corporation was to have no exclusive privilege and was to be restricted from trading in anything but bills of exchange, bullion, and forfeited pledges. As soon as the plan became generally known, a paper war broke out as furious as that between the swearers and the non-swearers, or as that between the old East India Company and the new East India Company. The projectors who had failed to gain the ear of the government fell like madmen on their more fortunate brother. All the goldsmiths and pawnbrokers set up a howl of rage. Some discontented Tories predicted ruin to the monarchy. It was remarkable, they said, that banks and kings had never existed together. Banks were republican institutions. There were flourishing banks at Venice, at Genoa, at Amsterdam, and at Hamburg. But who ever heard of a bank of France or a bank of Spain? Some discontented Whigs, on the other hand, predicted ruin to our liberties. Here, they said, is an instrument of tyranny more formidable than the High Commission, than the Star Chamber, than even the fifty thousand soldiers of Oliver. The whole wealth of a nation will be in the hands of the Tonnage Bank, such was the nickname then in use, and the Tonnage Bank will be in the hands of the Sovereign. The power of the purse, the one great security for all the rights of Englishmen, will be transferred from the House of Commons to the governor and directors of the new company. This last consideration really was of some weight, and was allowed to be so by the authors of the bill. A clause was therefore most properly inserted, which inhibited the bank from advancing money to the crown without authority from the Parliament. Every infraction of this salutary rule was to be punished by forfeiture of three times the sum advanced, and it was provided that the king should not have power to remit any part of the penalty. The plan, thus amended, reached the sanction of the commons more easily than might have been expected from the violence of the adverse clamour. In truth, the Parliament was under duress. Money must be had, and could in no other way be had so easily. What took place when the House had resolved itself into a committee cannot be discovered, but while the Speaker was in the chair, no division took place. The bill, however, was not safe when it reached the Upper House. Some lords suspected that the plan of a national bank had been devised for the purpose of exalted the moneyed interest at the expense of the landed interest. Others thought that this plan, whether good or bad, ought not to have been submitted to them in such a form. 
whether it would be safe to call into existence a body which might one day rule the whole commercial world, and how such a body should be constituted, were questions which ought not to be decided by one branch of the legislature. The peers ought to be at perfect liberty to examine all the details of the proposed scheme, to suggest amendments, to ask for conferences. It was therefore most unfair that the law establishing the bank should be set up as part of a law granting supplies to the crown. The Jacobites entertained some hope that the session would end with a quarrel between the houses, that the tonnage bank would be lost, and that William would enter on the campaign without money. It was already May, according to the new style. The London season was over, and many noble families had left Covent Garden and Soho Square for their woods and hayfields. But summonses were sent out. There was a violent rush back to town. The benches, which had lately been deserted, were crowded. The sittings began at an hour unusually early, and were prolonged to an hour unusually late. On the day on which the bill was committed, the contest lasted without intermission from nine in the morning till six in the evening. Godolphin was in the chair. Nottingham and Rochester proposed to strike out all the clauses which related to the bank. Something was said about the danger of setting up a gigantic corporation which might soon give law to the king and the three estates of the realm. The peers seemed to be most annoyed by the appeal which was made to them as landlords. The whole scheme, it was asserted, was intended to enrich usurers at the expense of the nobility and gentry. Persons who had laid by money would rather put it into a bank than lend it on mortgage at moderate interest. Caremartin said little or nothing in defense of what was, in truth, the work of his rivals and enemies. He owned that there were grave objections to the mode in which the Commons had provided for the public service of the year. But would the Lordships amend a money bill? Would they engage in a contest of which the end must be that they must either yield or incur the grave responsibilities of leaving the Channel without a fleet during the summer? This argument prevailed, and on a division the amendment was rejected by forty-three votes to thirty-one. A few hours later the bill received the royal assent, and the Parliament was prorogued. In the city the success of Montague's plan was complete. It was then at least as difficult to raise a million at eight per cent as it would be now to raise thirty millions at four per cent. It had been supposed that contributions would drop in very slowly, and a considerable time had therefore been allowed by the Act. This indulgence was not needed. So popular was the new investment that on the day in which the books were opened three hundred thousand pounds were subscribed. Three hundred thousand more were subscribed during the next forty-eight hours, and in ten days, to the delight of all the friends of the government, it was announced that the list was full. The whole sum which the corporation was bound to lend to the state was paid into the exchequer before the first installment was due. Summers gladly put the great seal to a charter framed in conformity with the terms prescribed by Parliament, and the Bank of England commenced its operations in the house of the Company of Grocers. There, during many years, directors, secretaries, and clerks might be seen laboring in different parts of one spacious hall. The persons employed by the bank were originally only fifty-four. They are now nine hundred. The sum paid yearly in salaries amounted at first to only four thousand three hundred and fifty pounds. It now exceeds two hundred and ten thousand pounds. We may therefore fairly infer that the incomes of commercial clerks are, on an average, about three times as large in the reign of Victoria as they were in the reign of William the Third. It soon appeared that Montague had, by skilfully availing himself of the financial difficulties of the country, 
rendered an inestimable service to his party. During several generations the Bank of England was emphatically a Whig body. It was Whig not accidentally, but necessarily. It must have instantly stopped payment if it had ceased to receive the interest on the sum which it had advanced to the government, and of that interest James would not have paid one farthing. Seventeen years after the passing of the tonnage bill, Addison, in one of his most ingenious and graceful little allegories, described the situation of the great company through which the immense wealth of London was constantly circulating. He saw public credit on her throne in Grocer's Hall, the great charter over her head, the act of settlement full in her view. Her touch turned everything to gold. Behind her seat, bags filled with coin were piled up to the ceiling. On her right and on her left, the floor was hidden by pyramids of guineas. On a sudden, the door flies open. The pretender rushes in, a sponge in one hand, in the other a sword which he shakes at the act of settlement. The beautiful queen sinks down fainting. The spell by which she has turned all things around her into treasure is broken. The money-bags shrink like prickled bladders. The piles of gold pieces are turned into bundles of rags or faggots of wooden tallies. The truth which this parable was meant to convey was constantly present to the minds of the rulers of the bank. So closely was their interest bound up with the interest of the government that the greater the public danger, the more ready were they to come to the rescue. In old times, when the treasury was empty, when the taxes came in slowly, and when the pay of the soldiers and sailors was in arrear, it had been necessary for the Chancellor of the Exchequer to go, hat in hand, up and down Cheapside and Cornhill, attended by the Lord Mayor and by the Aldermen, and to make up a sum by borrowing a hundred pounds from this hosier and two hundred pounds from that ironmonger. Those times were over. The government, instead of laboriously scooping up supplies from numerous petty sources, could now draw whatever it required from an immense reservoir which all those petty sources kept constantly replenished. It is hardly too much to say that, during many years, the weight of the bank, which was constantly in the scale of the Whigs, almost counterbalanced the weight of the church, which was as constantly in the scale of the Tories. A few minutes after the bill which established the Bank of England had received the royal assent, the Parliament was prorogued by the King with a speech in which he warmly thanked the Commons for their liberality. Montague was immediately rewarded for his services in the place of Chancellor of the Exchequer. Shrewsbury had a few weeks before consented to accept the seals. He had held out resolutely from November to March, while he was trying to find excuses which might satisfy his political friends. Sir James Montgomery visited him. Montgomery was now the most miserable of human beings. Having borne a great part in a great revolution, having been charged with the august office of presenting the crown of Scotland to the sovereigns whom the estates had chosen, having domineered without a rival during several months in the Parliament of Edinburgh, having seen before him in near prospect the seals of secretary, the coronet of an earl, ample wealth, supreme power, he had, on a sudden, sunk into obscurity and abject penury. His fine part still remained, and he was therefore used by the Jacobites. But, though used, he was despised, distrusted, and starved. He passed his life in wandering from England to France and from France back to England, without finding a resting place in either country. Sometimes he waited in the antechamber in Saint-Germain, where the priests scowled at him as a Calvinist, and where even the Protestant Jacobites cautioned one another in whispers against the old Republican. Sometimes he lay hid in the garrets of London, imagining that every footstep which he heard on the stairs was that of a bailiff with a writ 
or that of a king's messenger with a warrant. He now obtained access to Shrewsbury, and ventured to talk as a Jacobite to a brother Jacobite. Shrewsbury, who was not at all inclined to put his estate and his neck in the power of a man whom he knew to be both rash and perfidious, returned very guarded answers. Through some channel which is not known to us, William obtained full intelligence of what had passed on this occasion. He sent for Shrewsbury, and again spoke earnestly about the secretaryship. Shrewsbury again excused himself. His health, he said, was bad. That, said William, is not your only reason. No, sir, said Shrewsbury, it is not. And he began to speak of public grievances, and alluded to the fate of the triennial bill, which he himself had introduced. But William cut him short. There is another reason behind. When did you see Montgomery last? Shrewsbury was thunderstruck. The king proceeded to repeat some things which Montgomery had said. By this time Shrewsbury had recovered from his dismay, and had recollected that in the conversation which had been so accurately reported to the government, he had fortunately uttered no treason, though he had heard much. Sir, said he, since your majesty has been so correctly informed, you must be aware that I gave no encouragement to that man's attempts to seduce me from my allegiance. William did not deny this, but intimated that such secret dealings with noted Jacobites raised suspicions which Shrewsbury could remove only by accepting the seals. That, he said, will put me quite at ease. I know that you are a man of honor, and that if you undertake to serve me, you will serve me faithfully. So pressed, Shrewsbury complied, to the great joy of his whole party, and was immediately rewarded for his compliance with a dukedom and a garter. End of chapter 20, section 12. Recording by S.T. Macduff.